Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Vandy Sports Podcast. Here's your host, Chris Lee. Commodore fans, on your feet, it's time to anchor down. Welcome to the Vandy Sports Podcast. I am your host, Chris Lee. Today's show will feature Mitch Light of The Athletic. We will mostly talk Vanderbilt basketball. The guest line is presented by Bowl and Branch, started by Vanderbilt graduates Scott and Missy Tannen. I had no clue how comfortable Bowl and Branch sheets could be until I got some. They are fair trade certified, meaning they are made under safe conditions by men and women treated and paid fairly. Try them free for a month. You can return them, but you won't want to. Once you get the sheets, try the mattress. That was voted the best mattress of 2018. Go to bowlandbranch.com. That is spelled B-O-L-L. Enter the promo code Vandy and get $50 off your first set of sheets. The news today presented by our friends at Sutherland and Belk, a Nashville-based injury law firm. Sutherland and Belk is committed to fighting for those who have been injured in car, motorcycle, and truck accidents. Check them out at sbinjurylaw.com. Vanderbilt falls again in men's basketball. Your final from Athens, Georgia 73, Vanderbilt 70. Dylan DeSue's 15 points lead the way. The Commodores drop to 1-7 in league play. The title sponsor of our podcast this year is Jody Jones DDS, trusted for his creative design and committed to both the function and aesthetics of your smile. Jody Jones provides a range of sought-after dental and cosmetic dentistry services at his practice in Nashville. He's earned the title of number one in Nashville for his cosmetic dentistry and provides a unique luxury environment for patients who want his famous Hollywood smile or other services. Patients enjoy getting services from Dr. Jones and his attentive team in a spy-like atmosphere. Dr. Jones has worked with many artists, movie stars, and celebrities over the years and is dedicated to providing first-rate results to all of his patients. He never compromises quality so patients can be confident they will always receive the highest level of care. Thank you to Jody Jones DDS for making this season of the podcast possible. Mitch Light joins us as he does most weeks. Mitch, of course, a college football editor at The Athletic. Mitch, thanks for joining us today. No problem, Chris. Hope you're well. I am. I missed the game this weekend. My son wanted to go to the new water park at Opryland for his birthday, so we did that. Did not get to see a second of the game did take a look at the box score, read the comments on our board. So I have some background, but I didn't get to watch it. I know you watched every second of the game. Give me your synopsis of what you saw. Yeah, I, I sat, joked with my son. I sat down on the couch from 5 p.m. to 10 p.m., watched uh, two basketball games, and uh, uh, and, and watched Vanderbilt lose and then the, the, the Brooklyn Nets lose. So I didn't move for about five and a half hours. <laughs> but um, – I thought the Vanderbilt game was, um, you know, entertaining game. Other than both teams were a little sloppy with the ball at times, um, it was pretty well played. And if this makes sense, like not that any turnovers are like good, but most of them were kind of like in transition trying to make a play, um, which it's not like just someone just whipping the ball out of bounds. Um, so, I, you know, you you could probably tell from the box score, there, there were some definitely encouraging things. One of them was that for the first time, well, I guess, the South Carolina game, you know, Vanderbilt was not reliant on Scotty Pippen for its offense. Um, in fact, Scotty goes three for 12, 12 points, uh, hits a huge bucket late. 
uh, and then gets a shot blocked, but uh, got more contributions within the flow of the offense from other people. As you can tell, four players in double figures. Trey Thomas hits a big, a big shot late. Isaiah, uh, Isaac McBride hit, hit a shot late. Um, you know, did, did some good things, had some trouble guarding Wheeler, which everyone does. That's kind of what he does. He gets into the paint and creates shots for, you know, nine assists and, you know, create shots for other people. Um, play, you know, just, just kind of stream of consciousness here. He played really well, except for a stretch at the end of the first half. And some of that was with the Sioux on the, on the bench. I mean, some of the problems were with the Sioux on the bench, but South Carolina, I mean, Georgia also just shot the ball well at the end of the, um, at the end of the first half, hit some threes to kind of get that lead out. And then Vanderbilt was kind of battling uphill most of the second half. Um, again, tied it up late. And I, I think if you ask Scotty Pippen, yes, Jerry Stackhouse, would you take down one with the ball and Scotty Pippen penetrating to the basket? Probably every time. So, um, again, it's you, you, you got to win games, but Vanderbilt's clearly playing better. And I, I would like to think in – it, you contribute some of this to more practice time, um, not playing Texas A&M. And this is this, you know, they mentioned that this is the first time all year other than uh, Tyler Lawrence being out. They've had a, they had a full roster. Now, Melora Brown didn't play, but evidently he was available. So I think, you know, they've had some more continuity in the past couple of weeks, probably than they've had all year. So uh, again, no, no bonus points for, for losing the game, but I thought Vanderbilt played pretty well. Scotty Pippen in his usage has been an interesting topic, and I think that's been cause of maybe a little bit of internal tension. I think they would like him to shoot less than he has. I watched them, and I think I don't know who I'd rather have shooting the ball or handling the ball than him. But you do see some high turnover games at times. You also yeah, he, see. He did, sorry to interrupt. He did have some some turnovers where they were not uh, either. He should have. Actually, one of them was, I specifically remember, I thought he should have taken the ball to the hoop, and he, I think he threw it away on the break, but uh, did have some more turnovers that I recall than in previous games. Well, the other thing, I'm not a huge fan of plus minuses because it's dependent on a lot of other things, right? But I have noticed at times in games, his plus minus, now when you lose a game and you play the most minutes, you're by nature probably going to have right. the worst plus minus. But, like, I look at his numbers from the Georgia game. He's minus five. DeSue, by contrast, was plus five. Uh, DJ Harvey, by the way, a minus nine in 13 minutes. But I've seen that from him a few times, and this is very unscientific, okay? I'd have to go back and look, and maybe there's nothing there. But lately it seems like I've seen a pretty significant minus number for him. Now, again, I'm not, I'm not buying it. I think he's their best player. I don't think it's close. I think it's probably a flukish thing, if nothing else. But it does seem like sometimes he will post a plus-minus number that is outside the realm of what I would think it would be. And then, of course, the aforementioned turnovers have been an issue. Like, I'll give an example for him. Florida game, he scores 30 points, but he has six assists to six turnovers. Next game against South Carolina – they win, he has 23 points in a 7-to-1 ratio. So a couple of dynamics with him and, and how they're used have been interesting as they show up in the box scores, Mitch. Yeah, I'll push back on that a little bit. You know, first of all, at the end of the half, it was a quick run by Florida, but I keep getting the team wrong, idiot. When, uh, when, when Georgia went on that run there and DeSue happened to be out of the game because he had foul trouble, and that, that again, that's part of plus-minus. DeSue's a good player, wasn't on the floor. My point being that 
I'm not sure Georgia doesn't hit three threes in the last few minutes if, uh, you know, D'Souza's on the floor there and Scottie Pippen's on, on the floor. His, and this is all big picture, you know, he's shooting 45% uh, overall and 37% from three, which is not, which is pretty good for a high usage guard um, in college basketball. You know, you see a lot of guards with gaudy numbers and you look and they're shooting 41%, 42%. Um, The Florida game, I think there's times when, you know, we saw Saban Lee last year, when the offense is really bogging down and the team's not playing well, the best player is going to be the one that's forced to do initiate the offense, forced to take some tough shots, forced to try and get others involved is going to turn the ball, turn the ball over. So, um, yeah, I, I get the argument. I don't know. I just think it's he's in a difficult spot, and a lot of times when this team doesn't play well because he is there's so much on his shoulders, and it's hard to expect him not to turn the ball over. It's not. It's hard to expect him sometimes to take some difficult shots. Not you know you know what I'm saying. Yeah, I'm not saying I buy it. Uh, it just you know it's there in front of us, and it, I, I thought it was worth discussing because I think he's far and away the best player on this team, just as Saban Lee was last year once you eliminated Neesmith. But, yeah, boy, this is three or four years running where you've got a really high usage rate by by one guy, and you kind of get to the end of the season, and you worry about just a, a guy's battery getting run down. Yeah, and he only played 30 minutes. They're doing a better job um, getting him some – you know, some time off, both, both Thomas and, and McBride, you know, Thomas played 17, McBride played 11. That's probably the most they played combined this year. I know Thomas played more earlier in the year. So, you know, DeSue was very, very good, had some big plays, just second chance points, ripping rebounds away. You know, you see his, I guess you'd try to try to like, like to give him more than eight shots, but you know, a lot of his stuff just comes in the flow of the offense only took two threes. Um, so again, you, the, Especially, and I, I I don't tweet much during games, but Vanderbilt did not take a three until the about the twelve fifty mark, maybe. I actually tweeted they didn't take a three. It was the first time I remember them not taking a three during the first until the media first time out, and actually extended for three more minutes. They were just running offense, either fast break, you know, stealing the ball, fast breaks, getting layups, or Jordan Wright taking the ball to the hoop. You know, there's nothing nothing wrong with bombing threes. Obviously, that's a very efficient way to score. But it was a game, first time in a long time, I remember, where Vanderbilt was able to score efficiently without shooting the ball from deep. The thing that jumps out to me on the box score, on the team level the most, turnovers. Georgia has 21. Vanderbilt had 13. Usually you get that kind of number, you're going to win the game. Of course, the issue is shooting. Uh, Georgia, 27-46 from the field. You shoot that well, you're generally going to win the game, too. What was your take on the turnovers? Because I don't think that Vanderbilt's been in the plus column to that extent. I mean, maybe you can go back in Mississippi Valley State or one of those awful teams they played earlier. But against a, a quality opponent, I haven't seen a number like that in a while. You know, South Carolina, I would guess that they Vanderbilt won the turnover battle because remember the beginning five minutes of the game, all South Carolina did was turn the ball over. Um, you know, a little sloppy play on on some fast breaks by by uh, Georgia. Uh, I thought Vanderbilt played some better defense. I mean, hard to say that when they shoot 27 for 46. But, um, yeah, again, I thought a little bit of both, as it usually is. Um, And Vanderbilt did a good job. Is there a number on this box score of taking advantage of those um, turnovers? Yeah, I know they did early. They scored scored on some fast breaks early. So, um, 
yeah, that, that number is high. And then, you know, you know, look at Georgia did some good things. They only got seven offensive rebounds, but they only missed 19 shots. So on, on their 19 shots, they got seven of those rebounds. And, it, you know, free throw shooting, 15 of 23 isn't awful by any stretch. But Scottie Pippen, who's what, like an 80, mid-80s percent shooter, goes six for nine. Um, the Sioux, four for six. Again, nothing wrong individually with those. But 15 for 23, maybe, you know, if they go, you know, 17, 18 for 23, it changes the complexion of the game a little bit. Yeah, the South Carolina game, it was turnovers. Carolina 16, Vandy 15. You're right, it was out of balance early. But I think, you remember Carolina ended that game on a 13 nothing run, and Vanderbilt yeah. had, I guess, walk-ons in. And it, it sort of made it misleading at that point. But, yeah, uh, points off turnovers. And, and, again, I think this is the stat that's misleading because you can you can get a point off a turnover, milk the shot clock to one, and then fire up a, a shot at the, right. at the shot clock buzzer, and it still counts the same. I mean, I pay more attention to, to fast break points off turnovers, and fast break points were just 6-4. to four. But points off turnovers, Vanderbilt wins that one 29-10. So, uh, again, for whatever it's worth, uh, that was a place where they had an advantage uh, but still couldn't close. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and you know, looking, you know, Vanderbilt – 12 assists on 23 buckets. A lot of that's when you get a fast brace. You know, sometimes on a fast break, you're not going to yeah, – I, I think, you know, Jordan right a couple times got a steal and went coast to coast, and, you know, there's obviously going to be no assists there. Um, so, you know, nothing else really jumped out uh, too much. And, you know, by the way, you mentioned South Carolina. What a weird, what a weird week it was for them. They get blown off the floor at, at uh, Vanderbilt. They go to Florida and win, and then they get home, they come home and they get blown out by uh, – uh, Blown off their own floor Mississippi by State. Uh, Mississippi State. Yeah, just weird. Yeah, three or four teams in this league that are like that. One is Carolina. Georgia's another one, although Georgia seems to be putting it together a little bit more. Uh, South Carolina with Sharif Cooper, and we'll get to the Tigers in a second, is another yeah. one. And then Ole yeah. Miss is another one. They're just Those are four teams that from night to night, you have no idea what's coming. Yeah, it looked like Auburn was about to get their act together, and they have – but, you know, they they played relatively well at Baylor for a little while, and then they lost at home. I know they lost to, to Ole Miss over the weekend, but they lost at home to Georgia. Yeah, so it's they, they are, you know, again, thought they were putting it together. Cooper getting all this praise, one of the best players in the country, and, uh, you know, they, they've lost at least three straight. Two things that were topics on our board over the weekend. Let's start with this one. The usage of timeouts or maybe the non-usage of timeouts was a big topic of discussion afterwards on our board. What was your thought on what Stackhouse did or didn't do with those timeouts, especially as it got late in the game? Really, I did not notice it at all. Um, what was what were some of the was it during a run or something or, you know? Well, the first criticism that people had was that they didn't use one during a run. I think Georgia had a 12 nothing run. And, and then I think that maybe to set up an offensive possession late. I know they used one, I think, with 2.1 seconds left. Uh, but I think there were some folks that thought that maybe they should have burned one before then. I've never been a person that pays a lot of attention to those. It's To me, use of timeouts and not use of timeouts, a lot of times people's opinions – Follow what works or what doesn't. In other words, if yeah. if coach doesn't use a timeout, then people say, "Oh, that was brilliant. He didn't give the other defense a chance to set up, and it worked out." If 
if they do use, or if they don't use a timeout, it doesn't work. Then people say, "Well, see, they should have called a timeout to set something up." So I'm not, I don't have a strong opinion on it one way or the other. And again, I didn't watch it, so I can't comment. But I guess the fact that you didn't yeah. really think much about it uh, tells me what your answer will probably be. Yeah, I mean, maybe I'm. I didn't. I wasn't sitting there saying, "Wow, could really use a timeout." And um. Trying to think late in the game. I think Vanderbilt scored once coming out of timeout. It might have been a Georgia timeout. And I, you know, just thinking out loud here, I a lot of times timeouts are called on the road when the crowd's getting into it. And, you know, I think Georgia, I don't know what their attendance is. It looked like there were 100 people in the stands. Maybe they let just friends and family in, but the, there, there weren't a lot of people uh, there. So it's not like you're stemming the tide. And, you know, some of its execution. Georgia's late run, if I recall, I watched a lot of basketball over the weekend. It seems like in the first half they hit just some threes. And, you know, if a team's hitting two or three threes on you in a row and they're good shots, it's not like if they're not, I'm not saying this was the case, but if they're not like these horrible defensive breakdowns, you know, it, it's it's not necessarily, you don't necessarily need a timeout for that. Again, I, I'd have to go back and, and rewatch the game. Um, but I guess after watching. Uh, you know, when Eddie Fogler was the coach when I was in school and then all those years of Kevin Stallings, who, you know, kind of is a North Carolina disciple. If you go through Roy Williams, th- those guys don't use timeouts a lot. They kind of let their teams play through. So maybe it's just the way I've watched Vanderbilt basketball over the years. Uh, some coach, well, except for Bryce Drew, who, you know, would often have three timeouts called the first five minutes of a game. Uh, so each coach has his own theory on that. But it, again, my long winded answer is I didn't I didn't really notice it at all during the game. What other topic of conversation was Ken Pomeroy's luck stat? And I don't really, well, I shouldn't say I don't like, I'm not crazy about the name. What he calls luck, I believe, is the difference between, in baseball terms, it's your Pythagorean expectation, which means that in baseball, we've studied this, that if you score 800 runs over the course of the season and you give up 700, then your winning percentage should be X based on that. And they do that for different sports. And this one, I think that's what Ken Palm does. I don't know that I've seen him spell it out, but I think that's what he calls luck, either good luck or bad luck, is you've scored this many points, you've given up this many points. Uh, Based on that, you should have been winning at X percentage, you're winning at Y percentage instead, and the difference in the two is attributed to either good luck or bad luck. This is the fourth to fifth year running that they have been near the bottom of the country in luck. They are 343rd this year. And some teams below them, uh, just for fun, Tennessee State, one below them, TSU having an awful year, 3-14, and 14, was expected to be better than that. Uh, Wake Forest is below them. Wake is 7, excuse me, 5-8. and eight. Kentucky is below them. Actually, Kentucky's eight spots below them. Uh, followed by Nebraska, Murray State. Murray State, a team that was supposed to either win or contend at the top of the OVC. Uh, that team is 9-9. Nine and nine. And then last is Loyola, Maryland. Uh, New Mexico State also, uh, next to last, that's a program that out of the whack every year. Uh, I mean, they're like almost the, the right and auto bit out of the whack. They, they win the regular season and they win the tournament. Uh, now, look, those last two limited sample size uh, New Mexico State's only played eight games, and I think that factors in too, right? You have some teams that haven't played a lot of games, and maybe that straightens out. But uh, anyway, that's a long-winded preamble to ask you what you make of their continued quote-unquote bad luck as Ken Palm would size it up. Yeah, I, I've noticed that. I, I don't really know what to say. I'd love to talk to Ken Palm more about it and 
how exactly, I mean, I understand the Pythagorean theorem. I, I mean, the in baseball, I, I, I get the gist of what he's saying about, you know, what, what, what goes into that and all that. Um, it's, you know, what, it's hard to believe that one program could be, have that much bad luck for your, whatever is three years run, running. So, so what are the factors that contribute to that? So uh, again, I, I don't really know enough about the formula or how you get there uh, to have much comment on it, except it's just, it's bad luck that there's continued bad luck, I guess I would say. Yeah, their rankings going backwards, they were 316 out of the 300, and I think it was 53 or 54 Division I teams last year. This year it's 357. The year before they were 346. The year before that, 336. And the one before that, I think that was a little better. That was the year they went, I think, to the tournament. Um, yeah, they were 292 then, so still not great. But it, it is really odd. I don't know what the odds are statistically that the team could wind up in the bottom 10 to 20% every year in, in luck, but I, I wouldn't think they'd be good. Yeah, you should look, you should uh, get in touch with Ken Palm and ask him. He's pretty accessible. He used to write for us at Athlon Sports, and, uh, um, you yeah, know, might be an interesting story. Yeah, and the year before that, this would be 2015-16. They were 346. That was Kevin Stallings' last team, the one that just stuck in, uh, snuck into the um, the tournament. That that team was 19 and 14 and ranked 25 in Ken Palm. But again, the luck disconnect uh, because Ken looks at at basically points scored to points allowed and efficiency, and he doesn't take in win loss as as a factor, but anyway, uh, it, it's an odd dynamic. Let's see schedules. Uh, Vanderbilt's got Auburn coming up uh, again. Auburn has been a different team with Sharif Cooper, uh, but a team that struggled with him lately. What, what's your take on that matchup for Vandy? Yeah, I mean it, it's interesting because you mentioned that they're a different team. They are a different team, but they're they're kind of struggling um, of late. I haven't watched them a ton this year. Uh, I watched the. Uh, a lot of the Baylor game and you know he's clearly an exciting player and they've got some other parts it's not nearly the type of team that they've had in recent years um, so I wouldn't really know what to expect and keeping him out of the lane is going to be priority number one I would think but that's that's what every team tries to do with him so don't ha you know don't have a in-depth scouting report on Auburn again like I haven't watched them a ton but I'm surprised they are struggling like they are. I'd love to know the reason, you know, why they've, you know, I didn't see any of the Georgia Auburn game. Just, I would, I didn't, I wasn't overly impressed with Georgia. Um, got Wheeler's good, got some nice parts there, but like I thought Vanderbilt was, you watch that game, you, you, Vanderbilt's just as good as, as, as Georgia. They just happened to lose the game. Uh, so I was very surprised by that Georgia win, especially since it was at Auburn, I believe. Are you hearing anything on makeups? Because I think they left a week between the end of the season and the tournament for some makeup games. Vanderbilt lost two games, uh, lost as in they didn't play the game, yeah. to Texas A&M, which I thought was, frankly, the most favorable matchup they had on the schedule just by style of play and such. Uh, now, that's going to be one of those, uh, you know, maybe 52 to 50 grinded out games, but A&M can't score. And, you know, that's not been a huge issue for Vanderbilt. So I don't, I don't know how that, that resolves. Now, A&M does play defense, and, and maybe that gives Vandy some trouble. But I thought looking at it, and you look at Ken Palm, A&M and Vandy are by far the worst two teams in the league, according to him. 
I, I wonder what the chances are they make one or both those games up because if I'm Vandy, that may be my best shot at a win here on out if they can get one of those back on the schedule. Well, yeah, and I, I don't know. I, I don't know what they're planning on doing. Again, I know there's that open period there before the tournament. Um, I don't know who would have to agree to to this um, because neither team would want to play two road games. But as you, if you pay attention, you'd notice that some small mid-major conferences they're playing back-to-back games on on the same site um, with the same opponent, rather than you know well, they're doing that to cut down the travel. So since Vanderbilt A and M had two games canceled, they could play two nights and two games and three nights or back-to-back nights, and that would be an easy way to make up two games. Um, so I wonder if they would consider doing that. Yeah, I mean, if I'm the league, frankly, I consider bringing everybody to Nashville uh, maybe a week early. Anybody needs a game to be played. I don't know how that works out at school, but with so much online learning now, uh, it would seem to be something you could do. Uh, and just play everybody in the you know downtown in the building where you're going to play the tournament um, and get over that way. Yeah, that's interesting. We'll play, you know, play some games at Vanderbilt during the day or, you know, Belmont, Lipscomb, whatever, you know, that that's actually a good idea. And you could, it, the regular season usually ends on a Saturday and the tournament starts on a Wednesday or Thursday, but you, you could definitely get some games in early that next week. Yeah, I mean, I guess you might have some conflicts with the Predators, too. I, I didn't think about that, but you're right. You've got sure. enough gyms around town with CSU, Belmont, Lipscomb, Vandy. You could make that work. Yeah, because you're not worried about getting crowds in or anything, so. Right. Any other thoughts before you get into the mailbag, Mitch? Uh, not really. It's, you know, with only one game a week, it's, it's there's not as much to talk about. <laughs> no. 2020 is uh, w- was old, and 2021 feels like a lot more the same so far, so. Our mailbag is sponsored by Vanderbilt fan Josh Minton, an independent insurance agent operating out of Brentwood who can take care of your insurance needs. Call him today, 615-933-1979. Email him at josh at hqinsurance.com. Follow him on Twitter at joshuamintonhq or facebook.com forward slash jdmintonhq. He is my insurance agent. Give him a try and tell him you heard about him on the Vandy Sports Podcast. The first question comes from Ann Arbor Door. Thoughts on Keyshawn Vaughn, will he stay in Tampa or do you see him being traded? Uh, of course, Keyshawn Vaughn was on the Bucks roster for the Super Bowl but declared inactive just before the game. Leonard Fournette had a really good playoff run, um, you know, which I, I don't know how that's going to shake out going forward, if that's going to be indicative of how he plays or that was just a one-off thing. But uh, what are your thoughts on Keyshawn Vaughn and his future in Tampa. I think Keyshawn will remain in Tampa. I think they like him a lot there. Uh, if you notice, he a lot of it was injuries with Ronald Jones and some other backs they've had there, but he was active in the wild card game against Washington and fumbled. And, you know, rookies fumbling in playoff games, that doesn't sit well with, with coaches. So he's been inactive. The, he was inactive the three games after that. I don't know if he, if he doesn't fumble. Is he, is he active? Who, who knows? Um, I don't know how, you know, Ronald Jones has been around a long time. I, I my, my guess is Keyshawn Vaughn is back next year and is the number two running back. I don't know. What, again, I don't know what the contract situations are with those other backs, but I think they like him and I, I'd be surprised if he's not back. And I'd be surprised if they don't give him a chance at some point to be the, the, the lead back. You know, maybe it's in two or three years, but, um, you know, I, I'd be surprised if he's not in Tampa. 
The knocks on him at various points of his career, and this was the knock on him coming to Vandy, was fumble-prone. Now, I think he only lost maybe one fumble his entire Vanderbilt career. He was really good at ball security, actually. So there's that, but it did, again, pop up this year. And then pass protection, that's the other one. Not uncommon for a rookie back to struggle with that. You know, that was a knock on him his first year at Vandy. I think he graded out respectably as a pass blocker his second year. So that may have been an issue in Tampa. It seems like I heard that it was, but I, I can't tell you if it was or not. But a lot of times that's perception in the eyes of coaches anyway. But I suspect if Keyshawn fixes those two things, he's got a future in this league, Tampa or somewhere else. Yeah, he's clearly good enough uh, with the ball in his hands. Uh, but as you mentioned, it's a couple of those things. When, you, when you're a rookie and you are fighting for playing time, you, you can't fumble the ball. You can't miss, say, some pass protection or anything. You know, we don't know the details of his pass protection. Uh, but, you know, I, I watched a couple of games this year where he got a decent amount of carries. And then one was the Detroit game when a lot of them were in, when, when Tampa was way up. But I forgot one game that was on here locally, you know, scored a touchdown. and. Um, you know, did, did some good things with the ball. Next one from VU Wars. Regarding Barton Simmons joining the staff, do you think that long-term this results in more high-star rated kids signing with Vanderbilt or more diamond-the-rough players being targeted like Aristotle Taylor? Either way, it's interesting, but wondering if you lean one way or the other. I don't mean one way or the other. I don't. I mean, I, I I'm a huge Barton Simmons fan. I think his addition was great, and as I've kind of joked on here, I, I think I I called it, told some friends right when Clark got the job. I was like, don't be surprised if Barton Simmons joins his staff. Um, I, I think I guess if I would lean towards one, I'd say more diamonds in the diamonds in the rough because he is, I think, a really good talent evaluator, and he knows he knows so many people, knows where to go. People know him. You know, coaches will reach out to him and say, hey, I've got this kid because they know Barton's a you know, good dude who knows his stuff. And um, so I, I think the, the, it'll, it'll work on that end as well. But, you know, I, I think Barton will just be, do a good job helping the staff to, to identify players who are good fits at Vanderbilt and good fits for what Clark wants to do on both sides of the ball. I'm not gonna, I don't think we'd sit here and say that kids are going to want to sign with Vanderbilt because of Barton Simmons, like, like a four-star or five-star kid's going to come to Vanderbilt because of Barton Simmons. Um, so I guess I, as I talk my way through it, I think it would it will help Vanderbilt identify more, you know, guys who are kind of flying under the radar. Yeah, I'm with you. I don't think that Barton is going to be the difference between them landing some kid that Alabama and Georgia and Florida are after. They're going to have to come up with some other tricks for that, starting with winning games. But I do think that the evaluation piece, and, and again, that's what Barton did for a living for, I don't know, 12, 15 years, whatever it was for him. I, I'm with you. I think that's where that shows up as a positive for them. Yeah, no doubt. Again, he just, he, he, he ranked rated guys on both ends of the spectrum. He clearly, you know, knew what a five-star looked like, but, it, you know, I, I listened to his podcast a lot. I read a lot of his stuff. He, uh, I think he's a very good eye for talent, and you know he knows Clark very well, and knows what Clark's looking for, and on both sides of the ball. So um, again, I'm very thought it was a great hire, but I think it's wishful thinking to sit here and say it's going to help land more top 250 players or whatever. Viewperior asks, do you have any recollection of David Culley from the standpoint of Vanderbilt ever considering him for the head coaching position? Uh, 
his name would pop up in searches, quite frankly. And I think it was just sort of like certain local media members saying, Vanderbilt has a job opening. Who are some possible candidates? This guy played football at Vanderbilt. He's a coach somewhere, so I'm going to put him on the list. Like, there's nothing wrong with that. Everyone does that. But I don't think he was ever considered to be the head coach at Vanderbilt. That has never been a name that I've heard circulated privately. I mean, I know almost nothing about him. I could look him up in a minute, and good for him for getting the Texas job. But that's just never a name that when I talk to people about coaching or who's interested in that, I don't think that name ever once has popped up privately. Yeah, I agree. He's been a you know kind of respected NFL guy. I think everyone's surprised he got the the Texans job. Uh, so again, good for him. And you know, he's I guess he's been in college early in his career, but he was you know basically a career uh, NFL guy. In Gold asks, do you have any good Rotier stories or memories or any other local places that have gone away? Uh, to the listening audience, some know and some don't. Rotier's announced that it is closing or will close soon. Uh, that's been an institution of this town for, I don't know, at least back to the 60s and, and maybe before that. But any thoughts on Rotiers or anywhere near there? I'm kind of an Elliston Place guy myself, if you're going to go that route. but um, I would say uh, I was a big Rotiers fan in college. My junior year, I lived in Carmichael Towers 3, which is, you know, just I don't know, probably less than about an eighth of a mile from maybe a quarter of a mile from Rotiers. I think our, we lived in a suite with six guys. We went every Monday night for dinner, um, I believe. So probably been there, you know, a hundred times or so. So yeah, great place. Have not been in a while, um, which probably a lot of people have said that. And that's probably part of the reason, unfortunately, why, why it's shutting down. But yeah, great place. And uh, was one of those type of places you used to bring people from out of town to get a little local flavor. Nashville's changing a lot. Uh, I mean, I, I know it's no use. Some of that's good, some of that's bad. But there has been some concern, and I will fall on this list, about losing institutions like that. Uh, I guess that just happens. But you hate to see places like that go away. You had Vandyland. They've been out of business, what, 10 years? I've only been there once or twice. But, yeah, I mean, you, I hope I hope you don't see more of that, uh, especially downtown close to campus. Yeah, I mean, some of it's just natural. Um, things change, people close shop. Some of it's uh, the pandemic, obviously, and I think that's what. May, well, I don't. I don't know if that was the last straw with Rotiers. I think they were having some landlord issues there, but uh, no, no doubt. Uh, you know, I used to run the loop when I was in college all the time. I'd, I'd like to visualize, go back and see how many of the places around the, you know, 21st West End corridor were there. In 1993, I'm, uh, my senior year, are there now. Definitely a lot of changes. Yeah, for sure. Mitch, any parting thoughts before we end the podcast today? Uh, not really. Not really. Um, I think we covered it, and you know, looks like the the, the on-field staff's complete. Um, not everyone's announced yet, but um, and heard Clark make the rounds on, on signing day last week with all the media outlets. And, you know, he conti- I continue to be impressed by the things he says publicly. And I think he made a, you know, I, I don't know much about the, the linebacker coach hire they made from the Bills, but I remember Lamar Morgan, who was on the cornerbacks coach, who was on James Franklin's staff as a grad assistant, you know, didn't know him really, but just seeing him around going to practice and stuff like that. Um, I think he's highly regarded. So that, that appears to be a pretty good hire there. So, um, Hopefully there'll be something something close to a normal spring practice, and uh, we'll get some get out there and watch some football. 
Before you leave, give us your Twitter account and feel free to tease anything coming up at The Athletic. Um, at Mitch Light. And to, some some really good stories we had last week. And just as if you're a college football fan, nothing Vanderbilt related. But uh, Josh Kendall, our South Carolina writer, did a, a oral history of uh Jadavian Clowney's recruitment to South Carolina and you know one of the one of the most highly rated recruits in the, the modern recruiting era and just kind of what went in getting him there some really funny anecdotes in there Spurrier accusing Alabama of cheating and and all that that was really good and there's a story about the Miami Northwestern high school team um that that uh that actually Levante David was on who played so well in the Super Bowl that had so many future future pros on it and then another really good you know I just love these old look at recruiting stories uh Oregon how they landed DeAnthony Thomas um during, during the Chip Kelly era and how they got him away from USC and stuff so some some really good kind of historical pieces that, that we had run in the past week Mitch thanks for joining us today we'll catch you next week All right. Sounds good, Chris. Take care, bud. All right. He's Mitch Light of The Athletic. I'm Chris Lee, the host of the Vandy Sports Podcast. Thank you for listening. We'll have several more episodes coming later this week.